Welcome to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. I am Carolina Montilla. And I'm Joel Ferris. We have the immense honor of speaking with the one and only Adele Worsley today. Adele is a colleague of ours here at Gensler. She's a wonderlust-driven researcher and strategist guided by an innate curiosity of the beliefs and dreams of others. She's amazing. Carolina and I love working with Adele. She's a brilliant thinker and a bright light on every team. And she's one of those people that clients come back to time and time again asking for by name. So uh, definitely excited to have Adele on The Fuzz today. And we get to talk about epistemology. Epistemology is one of my favorite things to talk about. It is the philosophy of knowledge. What is knowledge? How do we know something? I'm super passionate about this conversation. I really believe that how we know and the mechanisms of knowing are fundamentally behind many of the challenges that we face as a society, as well as many of the potential solutions uh, for community and cohesiveness and our culture today and all of its stratification and fragmentation. Adele's bringing some really helpful insight to this conversation. She's also introducing us to some amazing learnings from others that she's absorbed along her knowing journey. And we do cite quite a few people in this conversation. Uh, There are also some big words. Epistemology is a word I can never spell right. So Adele has graciously put together a resource list for those of you interested in diving deeper, and that will be included in our show notes. So without further delay, here is our conversation with Adele Worsley. Uh, Adele, it is, it's been great to know you and to continue knowing you. Uh, we're talking about knowing today, and uh, knowing is really important. Do you want to tell us why knowing is important <laughs> and how we know what we know? What is knowing anyways? Okay, thank you for that question. That will summarize the next 30-odd minutes of talking. <laughs> um, I can just take it from here. Um, so... Uh, also, it's great to know you, Joel and Carolina, as well. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Um, thank you. So today we're going to talk about different things that I understand in the field of epistemology. And if epistemology is a word that is unfamiliar to you, that makes sense. It's kind of a weird word. Maybe you heard it if you were fortunate enough to study at university and you were always like, oh my gosh, what is this word people throw around? It's kind of confusing. Um, I think it is unnecessarily confusing a word, but it is also helpful if we break down the word epistemology. Epistem means uh, knowledge or understanding or skill, and then ology is uh, just the science or discipline of something. Um, So it is basically the theory of knowledge. And I really like how Patricia Hill Collins defines it. She is the author of Black Feminist Thought. um, And she defines it as the way that we investigate the standards that we use to assess knowledge Mm. or what we deem as valid knowledge. And epistemology is about why we believe what we believe to be true. And inherently, it's about or it points to the ways in which power relations shape who is believed and why. Uh, um, and at the crux of this 
uh, field of study of epistemology is this understanding that knowledge is something that is socially constructed, i.e. the way that we know things, the way that we deem something as a truth, that is socially constructed. It is not an enduring, natural way of being, and it's always been the same way. The way that we know has shifted over time as cultures have evolved over time. And so that is the, that's kind of the anchor point to this whole conversation is coming in with this understanding that knowledge is socially constructed. It's almost seasonal. Knowledge is seasonal. almost seasonal. Seasonal. Say more, Carolina. Yes. I, you know, like, because it changes with history, it changes with society, it evolves. It, it's almost seasonal in a way, you know, mm -hmm. like it's and we as human beings try to get attached to this knowledge that is permanent and that is the whole truth. And, and you know, I love the idea of being it seasonal in a way because it allows us to keep an open mind to the unknown. I think mm -hmm. like knowledge is as important as the unknown, which is what this podcast is about. The unknown, the curiosities, the questions we have. I love that. And if we think about knowledge as seasonal, if we look at the flows of different human societies across the globe historically, we can see how different paradigms of knowledge um, have also traveled with those people. So something to dig into here and I think a good place to start is thinking about what is the dominant way of knowing today mm -hmm. and so that is really based in the way that European colonizers traveled across the globe and with them took a way of knowing um, that you know developed through the enlightenment that this way of knowing um, so there are different ways to describe it um, I'll use the term Western scientific thought. So in Western scientific thought, which is a paradigm that we're still deeply in right now, in this way of knowing, worthy knowledge is something that is rational, it is logical, it is something that can be captured in a set of numbers. In fact, if it can't be captured in a set of numbers, it's not really scientific thought. It's not really good thinking. It's maybe a nice anecdote, but it's not something that is really rooted in the real. Um, and in this Western scientific thought, this is where objectivity is foundational, this idea, this belief that, oh, we can totally not be biased and never be, never be biased in this way of thinking. Um, and I would argue that every in research endeavor we ever do is biased and we can use that um, in our favor. That's actually an amazing thing to be biased. It shows that we have values and love for something um, and we care about an outcome. In Western scientific thought, again, the paradigm that we're in, um, this, you might have heard of the word positivism. This is another thing that characterizes it. So positivism, again, is about uh, this, uh, it's all, we're all in service of numbers, kind of numbers are God in this realm and not feelings or something else that can't be captured in a number. It's also a way of thinking that is hierarchy fixated. And if we think back to our experience at school, as children, we're always being ranked on our ability to know certain things. So it's very hierarchical. And also, and importantly, in Western scientific thought, it is 
uh, knowledge is seen as something that can be acquired. It's kind of external facing. So you can get more of it if you study more, but also if you uh, colonize other areas and dominate and oppress other ways of knowing, and you claim that you know the real uh, biology and ecology um, of this place. Um, so it's very, it's hierarchical and it's about taking and acquiring um, and in, if we think about, uh, the movement of colonizing forces across the world. So, um, Linda Tuhiwai Smith, um, she is writing from an Australian Aboriginal perspective about, about epistemology. And she's talking about how, when colonizers went to a country and let's say Canada, that's where I'm based in Vancouver, Colin colonization wasn't just about stealing land. It wasn't just about the attempted genocide of people. It was also about the attempted destruction of ind indigenous knowledges, indigenous languages, um, because we know that our ways of knowing are tied to our ways of living, our ways of being. And so in Canada, we still have communities reeling from the impacts of children being forcibly sent to residential schools in order to try to destroy their indigenous languages and their ways of knowing. So this is kind of uh, trying to contextualize the paradigm of knowledge that we're still in now in the work that we do and the way that policies are shaped and the way that we're ranked and judged at school is we assume that the best kind of knowledge is knowledge that is gonna be rational, logical, and there'll be a number ascribed to it. Right. That was a phenomenal overview of so much, I think, in such a dense, short summary. And so to, to, to slightly recap, just to really land the plane here, I think, so epistemology is the discipline of the study of knowledge. Is that a fair kind of yep. description, definition? And it's important because we should all be aware of our epistemology. We should all be aware of the ways that we know because the ways that we know affect the ways that we relate to other people and to the world around us. It's primarily the way that we know today being this logical, uh, objective, rational, uh, quantifiable way of knowing is a way of knowing that has created a lot of damage. It has been exploitative. It has been, it's a, it's a conquering mindset type of knowing. Um, and even if you think about this in scientific terms, if you think about like nature, if you go to know nature, what does, what do we do in a scientific way, scientific, rational, Western scientific thinking, we take the thing of nature and we break it down into its parts. We, we fundamentally delineate delineate parts and pieces we destroy the whole in our knowing right so that we can understand the relationship between the parts and how it works etc cetera, etc cetera. and so uh that's crazy to me to like hear you make and like connect those dots um that rationalism and dataism and the way that we through the scientific method take holes and break them into parts uh, is really rooted in this kind of colonialist Western mindset uh, is, wow, that's that's insane. So, okay, so 
so what what do we what do we need to do like we come to this recognition and we understand that we've been immersed in this and it's like a fish and water issue um what do we do now great question give us all the answers all the answers sure um and something that i wanted to add joel as you were as you were just speaking then was if we think about um our climate crises for example that Mm. we're deep in and we're mm-hmm. going to be getting deeper in, and this is a global crisis um, affecting some people first more than others. Right. I I believe, and many other people and theorists and journalists are talking about this. Is if we can't meaningfully augment our ways of knowing, I'm, and I'm not going to say replace, and I'll get to that in a moment. If we can't meaningfully augment our ways of knowing, um we we're going to stay in the status quo because mm. right now our policies and other governing factors that will determine whether we can meaningfully take action and change our behaviors in order to try to ameliorate our climate crises um we're going to be stuck in the status quo because we are to use the word dataism that you brought up if our concept of what is truthful what we can what is really valid knowledge and therefore what we can base really big, heavy, expensive decisions on, if that's only based in numbers that can be uh, acquired, a lot of that is based on what is existing in the now. You can make projections and you can have, you, you can use numbers in a, in a projection type fashion, but really what we're relying on is, well, what, what data do we have already to show what kind of pattern or what kind of, what might happen if we radically change this policy? That's all about what's happening now and what's happening in the past. It's not telling us about what could be. And, and so therefore it's really just stuck in thinking about the status quo, the status quo, as opposed to some radical shift to something else, because we're stuck in this obsession with numbers as opposed to, something like feelings. So to your question about, okay, well, what can we do about it? Um, I think there's some really interesting framings that I've read from other people that I'd like to bring up. Um, So in my readings, this idea of the importance of feeling and feeling as a valid form of knowledge has come Mm. up across across different theorists as one I've recently been reading. Um, You may recognize her name, Mina Salami. She's a Finnish Nigerian theorist. um, And she has this nice quote, which is about, you know, what an idea makes us feel is as important as what it makes us know. And so she's talking about the role of speeches, for example, really powerful speeches that make us start thinking differently about something and inspire action. Um, And Patricia Hill Collins, who I quoted earlier, the author of Black Feminist Thought, she also talks about the importance of not separating the intellect from our emotion. Um, And she talks about uh, how art and culture and music are such important sources sources of knowledge for Black feminist epistemology, which is what she's, her studies are focused on. And I'm thinking about like recently, you know, a few months ago in the news, how there was that teacher in Florida, uh, sorry, a parent in Florida who was trying to ban one of Amanda Gorman's poem from elementary schools in Florida. So we know that art, which is an expression of feeling, is this incredibly powerful thing that can uh, inspire action and, and a mindset shift. 
and people are scared of that, which is why this parent is trying to ban this right. poem or why colonizers continuously have destroyed indigenous art um, or sacred buildings in different, like in different communities. Art is this uh, inward or from the inward to the outward expression of feeling that is so powerful that oppressors will try to destroy it because, and how can we not then link feeling to knowing? It's, it's something that's so, it is, it is a vessel that uh, moves information from one person to the collective. Um, and uh, that's, so I think in answering the question of what do we do about it is first reframing um, the importance that we put on our, our feelings about things. And I think our artistic expressions are a way to check in about a cultural or societal sentiment about certain things. And then I think to kind of zoom back out or to the side or in, I don't know where we're zooming to, but to think about us as strategists, as researchers, as curious designers, what does that mean for us to try to incorporate feeling into the way that we uh, investigate something? I think the term thick data is helpful here. And what it means is, sure, we can have quantitative insights, they can be helpful, but we, with thick data, we're really interested in the qualitative insights. So this is information that's going to be about how certain stakeholders are feeling about something. Maybe we'll conduct observations to notice how they're behaving, because there might be things that they aren't even aware of that they couldn't really describe to us in an interview, but we'll be able to observe through thoughtful observations. Um, and I guess something like a question that I like to ask when I think about, or when I'm trying to tell this story of the importance of feeling as a form of knowledge is if I ask the two of you, what, and you don't have to answer, but if I ask the two of you, what is something that you feel you know the most? Like something you really, really know, it's maybe kind of the truest true that you can think of, even if you don't really believe there's a singular capital true, capital T truth. But what is something for the two of you that you really know? And you don't have to answer that, but I'll pause if you want to answer that and I'll, I will follow up. What do you think, Carolina? Do you have an answer to that? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of the follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I don't know if you're like, okay, like the thing that I true, true, true know, I know my parents are I know where I was born like facts kind of deal mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm worried about what is gonna be the follow-up question no, don't, be, don't be worried don't be worried Joel did you have anything you wanted like to the share? most basic things right <clears throat> I so this is a bit of a showing my cards a little bit in, in terms of my own epistemology i actually don't believe there's truth i think I, I i don't i don't i don't believe in knowing in a any in any objective sense of the word um so knowing to me what i know to know something is to experience a phenomenon within the container of 
my senses, um, fully knowing that my senses are insufficient for making sense of the fullness of reality, whatever reality is. Um, but don't you think like there are facts that you know, like, okay, how tall you are? Is that, do you know that? Or is that a construct yeah, are, of a are, system of a measurement? There's, there's, there's no, like, I could say I'm this tall in inches, but inches are completely arbitrary and made up. Right. Yeah, there's it's a no, system. There's, it's a there's, construct. It's yeah. a construct. Yeah. So I. And that's like, is that a truth? Mm. Right. No, I don't think it's a truth. I think it's a reference point that helps me relate to the world in various ways. Right. And um, it's contextual. So it's contextual. If you travel to an alien planet where everyone was 20 feet tall, right, you'd be like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of short now. Right. Right. Or like if you travel to the Netherlands, you might be like, oh, I'm kind of small. Or if you were somewhere else, you might be like, oh, I'm like quite tall. Yeah. So that's yeah. contextual. And what I'm hearing in the different answers that you both gave, um, I think that feeling is really embedded in those answers. Carolina, For especially sure. to you, your fact about knowing who your parents are, I would add, I'm kind of taking liberties here, but you know that your parents through their parental love, or at least that's been, I hope your experience of having parents is through um, the feelings that you have shared together through their actions for you, the way they've supported you, etc. So it feels like this, oh, they're on my birth certificate, this fact, but if you had experienced an upbringing maybe very different to the one you had, that might be not mm -hmm. the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, and Joel, your answer about um, these embedded or embodied experiences, and you use the word senses, like a sensorial experience, that's, that's all about feeling. Mm -hmm. So whether it's because you're feeling in the moment or you're just feeling lots of sensations or whatever it is, it's feeling. And I, I think that you could ask this question to other people. They might answer something about they, the thing they know the most is uh, something to do with their family commitments or their love for their children or their, or, you know, love for Kiki, whatever, whatever it is. It's, it's things that come back to feeling because even though growing up in our paradigm of thinking our feelings aren't the seen as the basis of true knowledge it's this i believe and other people believe it is an incredibly fundamental part of mm -hmm. how we understand the world around us is through feeling well and i think you you referenced her earlier in this conversation and joel and i were able to have the privilege to listen to mina salami in the conference that we were and I think a part of the same panel, uh, and it was about climate change to which is where you started. And part of the panel, and I can't remember exactly if she said it or someone else about our understanding of climate change. And again, this was a world audience, not a, just a US centric audience that for the majority of people, they understood or they knew climate change but to take action you needed like 
an emotional feeling to it that is the biggest gap that we have today regarding climate change. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about the knowledge. It's not so much about the facts, quote unquote. It's not so much about like all this data that we get is that most of the world misses the gap is the emotional knowing about climate change that is like that experiential part to actually take true action. Yeah. There's a, what you said, Adele, about Carolina knowing her, her, the, through the paternal love, right? That's where the knowledge exists. It really strikes a chord with me because I think one of the most compelling epistemology frameworks or paradigms that I've encountered is that of Esther Meek, who was a student of Michael Polanyi, who's a 20th century postmodern philosopher. And she says, basically, and this is my paraphrase, that knowledge is simply that which is loved. And the idea there is that knowledge is something that uh, we have deemed like what is known is something that we've just deemed worth knowing. Right. And so that mm. there was a, there was something that was yet to be known and the pursuit of the yet to be known was driven by a love. Right. And so mm -hmm. there was a desire to know that was acted upon, right. A commitment, a pledge. She uses the word covenant that the, like we make a covenant with, with the yet to be known. And in that pledge, in that covenant, reality discloses discloses itself to us through the commitment that we make to it right and so um i love i love that this epistemology of love really creates that space like you're saying for uh feeling and emotion and also the wholeness of our experience as humans our intuition our imagination and she gives these examples like for example, in painting the Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci pledged himself to the yet to be known, right? The painting didn't exist yet. It had not revealed itself. But through his commitment of love, it it manifested, right? Through his pursuit of this piece of art, right? And his willingness to come to know what would be revealed on the canvas through his, his brushstrokes. Um, and to this day the rest of us know Mona Lisa because he pursued that thing. Right. Um, likewise, uh, Einstein's love of the forces which govern our material universe and made quantum physics known, right. Those things like the, the laws of the gov of, of the universe and quantum physics and relativity and all of that. We know those things because of his love for understanding that aspect of our reality um and same thing like walt disney right in terms of animation technology and and the way that art in the 20th century was was developed and culture was shaped um you can go on and on and on and mm -hmm. give all these examples of really amazing cultural um inflection points uh both in our art and in our science and in our learning and in our, you know, so, sociality, economics, otherwise, because there was something that was deemed worthy of knowing um, mm -hmm. and pursued in love. And now you could also make an argument that those things were pursued from a place of ego 
and greed and right other things as well. Um, so, I, but I, I I think that actually makes it more interesting um, because then it gets it 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 further weight puts weight on the side of knowledge as a um, feeling and a, a, a really meaning making um, endeavor. And it puts into question uh, one of the tenets of Western scientific thought of uh, it not being bias, of objectivity, mm-hmm. because yep, right. we're understanding things are coming from uh, some sort of feeling, whether it's a love for something or an ego to be the first to know a certain thing. Mm-hmm. It's still inherently based in our messy, complex humanness, just right. feeling. Right. And I think this dovetails nicely into um thinking about how we measure things and there's a quote from Donella Meadows who is kind of the parent of systems thinking who says mm-hmm. you know we measure what we value mm-hmm. um and uh I wanted to ch- chat a little bit about um someone called Professor Maggie Walters from Tasmania she um does work on indigenous statistics she has an amazing keynote on YouTube if you just google Professor Maggie Walters I'll probably find it yeah we'll put links in the show notes yeah yeah and um the stance that she comes in with is and she's a statistician statistician um and actually i want to go back one step before getting into this which is um to frame this conversation is uh the importance of when we open up this conversation about ways of knowing is then Ideally, I'd like us to get to this place of um, embracing multiple ways of knowing. Um, It's not about, oh, Western scientific thought has no place, has no purpose, has no value, out with that and in with something else. It's actually about holding space for multiple. And this is not just coming from like my random brain. This is stuff I've learned from reading like people who are deep in this space. So if you've read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kamara, she talks about, has this lovely phrase um, that I imagine she'd use for herself as well, but as being heart-driven scientists mm-hmm. and how science can also be a path to kinship with the more than human world, um, forming intimacy with it, as well as traditional no- knowledge holders can. And she has this quote where she talks about scientists um, who are working uh, with salmon, how they are, they ask the salmon with experiments, they ask them questions, and then they listen carefully to their answers. Mm. And uh, Mina Salami also talks about this multiplicity of knowledge, and she's really talking about this marriage of emotional intelligence or feeling with intellectual skill. Um, Patricia Hill Collins also talks about um, how, you know, each group have our own distinctive standpoints and our own situated knowledge and our knowledge is always unfinished. Our truth is always partial. Um, and it's all about challenging this idea that there is a certified knowledge and there is one, because that's a very Western scientific thought way of thinking is that there would be one dominant correct way of thinking. Right. And so if we can unleash ourselves from the tendrils of that thinking then we can be like okay well actually some of the methods of western scientific thought are awesome they've taught us a lot they've progressed us in certain ways and we can also embrace these other ways of knowing too we can have a whole medley and it's great yes, so it's a fusion of things 
So we go from the base that knowledge as a measure thing is important, data and that methodology is important, but for it to transcend, it needs feeling. Is that fair? I love that. Yeah. And okay. then to get back to Professor Maggie Walters and Indigenous statistics, she is not saying statistics. It's only been really oppressive for Indigenous communities. Therefore, we should get rid of it. That's not her approach. Um, she is saying that, OK, let's start like firstly, data, no data are neutral. Mm. Data are just forms of persuaders. They summarize insights into numeric form. And then we use them for a purpose. We have a purpose when we create, analyze, and share data. They are forms of persuaders. Um, and she is saying there's a huge amount of Indigenous data or data on Indigenous communities, but it's often from an Indigenous free zone. It's not led by uh, an ind Indigenous lab or an academic or an evaluation or policymaker. And so what Professor Maggie Walters is saying is what we really need to do is reframe the questions. The methods for stats, they're fine, but it's the methodology that is questionable. So um, she talks about how mainstream Indigenous stats typically focus on things related to Indigenous difference and disparity and dysfunction and deprivation. And it's always about simplistically comparing an aggregate Indigenous with then this non-Indigenous non norm. And it's just this super reductive, simplistic comparison that is always coming from this place of uh, kind of suffering of something already going wrong. Um, and so what, so like an example that she might give of how to reframe a question is they'll, there will have been stats that have been collected with, um, on the basis of a question of something like how many indigenous versus non-indigenous children graduate school at 18, which is already, if you think about it, a pretty messed up way of asking a question because it's all like whatever answer you get, whether it's high or low or the same, it's the if there is a difference, it's hinging on the indigeneity of someone or the non-indigeneity of someone, no, nothing else. A way that Professor Maggie Walters might reframe that question might be how many secondary school teachers are indigenous or have friends or family or loved ones that are indigenous or have anyone in their social network who identifies as indigenous. And then when we look at that answer, and then when we look at the rates of children graduating school at 18 and look for patterns, then we might be able to see, see something that's going on. But it's not placing the blame on these kids. It's not placing the blame on these kids because they are indigenous. It's looking uh, with a systems lens as to the context in which these children live in, which might be that the school system is entirely inadequately prepped um, to uh, to take care of the cultural needs or to have empathy or whatever whatever else that might be. Um, so I think this is an example of uh, an example of where you are seeing the benefit of methods in our current paradigm of thinking, certain methods and stats, but then you're applying a different way of thinking 
or at least you're opening up in a more generous way to uh, to other other ways of knowing that just shifts the questions a bit and gets very different answers because of it. So going back to questioning the numbers of the why, of why this is happening, there is like understanding the context, the system uh, beyond that data and that number. And for us in our practice as strategists, as researchers, as designers, um, it I think this asks us to just think about our methodology, think about why we're asking questions the way we are. Maybe the methods are fine, the way we collect data and insights, um, but really just digging into how we create those questions and, mm -hmm. you know, ideally taking a pause um, before we just, you know, run quickly into a research project and get going. Um, and I read something once that I thought was pretty interesting about um, in the research space, the desire to replace explanation with description. So mm. when we try to explain something, explanation is this finite process. It's about seeking truth to something. But if we're just content with description, this uh, creates space for more experience, more experiences and more perspectives. Um, and it's less about this finite singular way of something happening. It's just describing um, potentially multiplicity of something. It allows the knowledge to evolve as you describe it versus explaining it. Huh, I never thought about it that way. But don't we need both though? I mean, I think this is like, there's no imagination and description. And I think like if we're going to imagine a newer, better alternative reality than the one that we're living in to get us out of the meta crisis that we're facing as a species, we need explanation. We need stories, right? And isn't a story just an explanation of something? It's not usually. Or is it a description of something? Well, I think it's abductive, right? Like this is mm -hmm. the thing about like what you're saying, Adele, about modern Western imperialist scientific thinking as an objective superior way of knowing is it is scientific knowing fundamentally is descriptive right there is no explanation because to explain something beyond just the description of the phenomenon is to inherently introduce a bias because then you're overlaying meaning and isn't that actually what we need though we need better meaning making mechanisms as a society and in our research we need more rigor around the ways in which we are understanding what's actually happening beyond the surface level description of the mechanistic phenomenon and understanding the why behind the what so that we can abductively imagine based on that the context of meaning an alternative or have an informed uh, um, approach beyond the because descriptive description in research to me just leads to derivative outcomes right but it, it, because you're, you're, it's a linear, to build on a descriptive research or to, to build on insights in descript, like in a descriptive manner is, is to extract in a linear derivative way from the research and the insights. 
but to bring explanation allows you to have that ab- abductive imagination imaginative jump to what could be rather than what is yeah that's interesting i would disagree with that um in my and i and i think some of this is based in semantics um mm-hmm. but uh as i understand it explanation is about this uh understanding this finite process of why a leads to b or whatever Mm. and that is inherently based on there being some sort of truth out there to be explained whereas description feels a lot more generous in welcoming in multiple ways of something being perceived or experienced and in that way uh, lends itself to uh, bringing in these other ways of being and other ways of knowing as opposed to to me this explanation is this kind of dominant force of this is why this thing is happening and that that's it no questions asked but something that I'd love to to jump to to kind of uh, wrap up a little bit of this um, thinking about measuring what we value peace um, is uh, if we think about the way that quality of life is typically assessed um, at the level of the nation, it's typically been with GDP. So gross domestic product, mm-hmm. which it, which measures market output. It was something that was generated and created in the, like around the second world war and it was never created to assess quality of life or standards of living. Um, and the person who created it also, like that that wasn't their intention, but it became um, and still is this kind of sweeping uh, or dominant way of us kind of explaining, oh, well, then the US must be 100% fab because it's GDP is really high or has been historically really high in comparison to other countries. We know that isn't true, at least not for many Americans. That's not true. So I think the question is, you know, what if, and I had this thought come to my mind the other day of, okay, what if we measured the quality and life and well-being of populations um, at the national level by looking at, for example, the number of years it takes someone with a uterus to get diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, and this, and we we haven't been able to get to it in this conversation yet, but this links back to, well, there is this idea of um, epistemic agents. So us as an individual being seen as a valid knowledge holder or not, and how that's not equal. So if you're, if you're someone, um, if you're a woman, or if you're someone who's racialized, if you're someone who has a disability, these are all reasons that might make you less believed when you say something. Um, and so this that's why this kind of provocation about what if we measure quality of life instead of with GDP, it was about the number of years it takes someone with a uterus to get diagnosed with endometriosis. It's because in somewhere in a place like Canada, it can take seven to 10 years for someone to get an endometriosis diagnosis, which is a pretty life-altering disease that affects minimum one in 10 women, according to the World Health Organization. So we can, we have 
the ability to really reframe how we understand the world around us, how we describe the world around us, if we if we can acknowledge the way that knowledge is socially constructed and its issues and its opportunities. And like one or maybe two opportunities that, I, that I'd love to just quickly end on um, because there is great positive stuff going forward. One thing that I want to shout out is back in Wales, which is one of my favorite places on the planet, um, in their government, they've created this role called the Future Generation Commissioner. I think they're now in the second commissioner because they have a limited number of years that they can serve. And they're all about representing the rights of future generations, including the rights of people who aren't yet born. So they're all about long-term thinking, they're all about well-being metrics, and they're all about embracing um, things that we can't know yet because it's based in the Embracing the unknown. Embracing the unknown. And I think that is very interesting and I a, a precedent in policy that I would love to see everywhere in the world. And the last one that I wanted to mention comes from New Zealand or Aotearoa. And something that I found that is super intriguing is that um, their treasury has something called the Living Standards Framework. And the purpose of this framework for the treasury is to provide economic advice or economic policy advice to the government. But what's interesting is that in this framework that is from the treasury, so you think, okay, well, about market output kind of money and stuff like that, what they're, the information that they're trying to collect and evaluate is related to things like individual and collective well-being. That includes subjective well-being, sense of voice, cultural capability, belonging. And they also have um, an indicator in it called uh, the wealth of Aotearoa. So that includes things like the natural environment and the state of the natural environment and social cohesion. So I think this is just a really interesting example of an economics government body that is uh, maybe not uh, completely leaving you know, market output type numbers, but it's adding in and incorporating these other things like sense of voice, which we can't, you, we can try to capture that in numbers and they will, but it is inherently about feeling and it's thick data and it's messy and it's nuanced and it's going to change. But they have stated that that is really important for them to understand the economic health and prosperity of Aotearoa. Adele, I feel like we need... Two more episodes <laughs> to get into all of it. So I will do, uh, I will attempt to summarize some of the things and leave them as open uh, kind of prompts for next episode. So overall, we talk about knowledge and the theory of knowledge and how in a way our westernized world have treated knowledge a lot of times based on data and certain methodologies that we should unpack, unthink, and open up to this idea of knowledge that includes feeling, the feelings that include emotional connections that are a were able to place perhaps data and numbers in context or systems that tell a different story. And, and I think there are many precedents that you quoted 
on embracing the unknown, have that idea of uh, that mindset shift to embrace the unknown when it comes to knowledge. So, so we can move the world forward and society forward in, in many ways. That, that was my attempt to summarize some of the things we discussed, but it's really just a prompt into like our next episode. That was a great summary. Thank you, Carolina. And thank you, Joel. Lovely conversation. I can't wait for part two. Thank you, Adele. <laughs> thank you. Great. Okay. You've been listening to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. The Fuzz is hosted by Carolina Montilla and Joel Ferris. Production by Jared Price. Brand designed by Krista Reeder. The theme music was written by Ido Maimon. For more on all things fuzzy, please visit our substack, thefuzz.substack.com. Thanks for listening.